Amen. You may be seated. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you will, to 1 Timothy. We're continuing to work our way through 1 Timothy. We're going to be looking this morning at one verse in particular. Verse 8. Before we jump into the text, men, please understand this verse singles you out specifically. And ladies, please understand that I'm talking to the men today, but I will be talking to you next week. So pray for me, all of you, because that can be a little awkward sometimes. I'm going to read the verse, and then we'll pray, and then we'll, we'll get to work. 1 Timothy 2, verse 8. I desire then that in every place the men, men, should pray lifting holy hands, lifting them up, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Let's ask the Lord to help us. Father, this morning as we come to your word, we see here an instruction. It is a brief sort of comment directed towards the men, Lord. Um, and we, we sometimes, Father, as we look at your word, we, we can hasten over these statements rather than stopping and slowing down to meditate. And so, Father, as we, as we look at your word this morning, God, I just pray that you would help men in here to understand exactly the depth to which you are calling them to serve as leaders, not only within their homes, not only within their respective vocations and careers, job places, but here within the church as we come together as a body of people to worship you. Lord, help us to understand what it means to pray and to lift hands in holiness, Lord. Father, we pray, God, that you would see, you would help us to see what it means to be reconciled to each other through your Son. And it's in his name we pray this morning. Amen. Now, as a Baptist church, we are not generally known, the Baptist church is not generally known for hand-raising in worship services. This is not something that we're known for. Uh, This last week, uh, somebody posted something on Facebook, a Christian comedian by the name of Tim Hawkins, who has a really great comedy sketch on hand raising, and every time I see it, it makes me laugh. Before we jump into that, I, I know that some of us are visitors here today, and some of us may come from different church backgrounds. We've ended up here at a Baptist church, but some of us may have come from different denominations or different church backgrounds where we might be more expressive in worship. And so, if you come from a church background that raises hands in, in worship, uh, would you raise your hand? That's a lot of us. Okay, good, good. Now, for some of us, we're Baptist-born and we're Baptist-bred, and when we die, we'll be a Baptist-dead. For those of you who come from a less expressive worship background, uh, for those of you who come from a church that doesn't raise hands, would you raise your hand? Okay. Now, just note the irony of that moment. We don't raise hands in church. Here I am. I don't raise my hand. And some of you, I saw, you were standing out there and you're like, wait, wait, wait a minute. 
I, I don't know if I, you know, and some of you are having that sort of moment. Tim Hawkins does this incredible comedy sketch where he starts to tease. He, he himself comes from a more expressive uh, form of uh, worship. He comes from a church background where they're much, much more expressive than we typically are in, in worship. And he has this great comedy sketch where he says that within these churches where there is hand raising, they have different names for the different types of hand raising that you can do. He says, when you come to church, when you come to worship, you start off with your hands in your pocket, and as the worship team begins to play, as they begin to lead out in the music, you know, you start to feel the rhythm, and, you know, it may start off with a little bit of an elbow flap. He says it starts here with an elbow flap. And then as the, as the spirit begins to move, as you begin to get more into the, uh, the worship that is taking place, this will go from an elbow flap to what he refers to as a carry the TV. <laughs> carry the TV. And from here, carry the TV will go to big screen, big screen TV, right? And big screen TV, it'll eventually move up to the chest level. And he calls this, my fish was this big. My fish was this big. And then eventually, my fish is this big. It can morph into more of a hold my baby, hold my baby. (laughs) And then some of you have seen Lion King, Mufasa, you know, hold my baby, hold my baby. (laughs) Up high, like Mufasa from Lion King, hold my baby. And he says, sometimes what you'll see is you'll see people who are more concerned with the lighting in the sanctuary, and they've got their own particular hand raising. It's called replacing the light bulbs. Replacing the light bulbs. Mm, just you're feeling it right here. Replace those light bulbs. And replacing light bulbs can go to goalposts. Yes, Lord. Goalposts. And goalposts can go up a little bit, but you always have to make sure you throw in a little heartburn. A little heartburn. Feel it right here. You're feeling the heartburn. And then there's the big three. The big three. But before we get to those big three, I'm actually skipping one. There's what he calls. The ladies in particular do window wiping worship where they're just like, mm, window wiping, <laughs> window wiping. We're feeling it at this point. And then there's the big three, village people, rocky, goalposts again, goalposts, okay? Village people, rocky, goalposts. And then from here, he says, you go vertical. If you're really expressive in worship, once you've hit the mile-high goalposts, there's really not much more you can do, so then you start to just jump up and down, up and down. My wife, I was actually telling a story in Tenet Talks this morning. My wife and I went to an Assemblies of God church once when I was at Dallas Baptist University, and this was a church that had a very expressive form of worship. And we walked into worship one Sunday morning, and uh, there was a lady who came in next to us, and she had slung over her shoulder. Now, this is in Texas, so my first thought was she was carrying maybe a rifle bag. It was over her shoulder, and I got to looking at it. I was like, no, it couldn't possibly be a rifle. It's, it's much too narrow for that. And as we got into worship, she unzipped this thing, and she pulled out her own flag, her own flag, and she unfurled the flag, and then she just started waving this thing in the middle of worship. And, of course, Shanti and I are standing right next to her, and she starts waving this thing, and I was concerned that I was going to get hit. So I was like, Shanti, scoot down, scoot down. We started to slide down. We, we are not expressive. My wife and I were not expressive in worship. And, uh, but we do get a lot of visitors here at First Baptist. I wonder, I want you to just pause for a moment, and I want you to put yourself in the place of a visitor, okay? A visitor walks through this church, and perhaps one of the questions that they're asking themselves, we have a couple of visitors who are here this morning, perhaps one of the questions you're asking yourself as a visitor as you come into the worship, you've entered in the foyer, is this a church that is more expressive, 
Is this a church that maybe raises its hands when we get into worship? And I can tell you that the immediate answer to that is going to be no. And you'll know this when you walk through the foyer. Do you know how you know? By the entrance to the foyer, these doors right out here, right off to the side, you know, when you think of expressive people worshiping and swaying back and forth, they start to get into it. They start to develop a sweat. You know, is that the kind of people we are here? People who will get so expressive will work up a sweat and worship? You know that's not. Because right by the door to the, en- to the entrance of the sanctuary here, you will see a dispenser for hand sanitizer. That's who we are. We're the hand sanitizer people, you know. Hi, welcome to First Baptist. I'm so glad you're here today. Put it there. Shake the hand. Yeah, this is your first time. That's great. Go on in. There's the sanctuary over there. Now, don't get me wrong. Hand sanitizer is a good thing, okay? We, we uh, particularly this time of season, we need the hand sanitizer. Can I get some amen from the Baptists out there? Yes, yes, we need the hand sanitizer. Hand sanitizer is good. We need that. We as a church do not frown upon hand sanitization and, and restricting the flow of germs within our, within our sanctuary. Some of you, are, I can tell you're getting a little mad. You're looking at me like, you're not going to take away our hand sanitizer now. No, I'm not going to take away the hand sanitizer. I'll make you a deal. I'll let you keep your hand sanitizer if you can give the Lord next Sunday a raised hand during worship. Okay? Well, that's what the Apostle Paul is directing specifically the men here this morning to do. As we look at this verse, I thought it was important for us just to pause and to look at this verse and to reflect upon our own worship practices as we see the specific teaching of Paul in this verse. And I I want us to be very, very honest with ourselves, and I want us to allow the Spirit to speak to us through the text I will be the first to admit to you that when it comes to worship, particularly coming from the the background that I come from, that Shanti and I come from, we are not 100% comfortable with expressive displays of worship, okay? We are the hands-in-the-pocket kind of people. If it gets really, really crazy with the clay camps, we'll maybe do a little elbow flap, and maybe we'll do a little foot stomp here, you know, in time with the music. But beyond that, we don't go much beyond that. And if that's you, I want you to understand that that's not necessarily a bad thing. But if we have individuals who are coming into our church who are totally surrendering themselves up to God and they are doing the full-blown goalpost, okay, we should welcome that. We should embrace that. As brothers and sisters come in to worship us, and if they are expressive in their worship of the Lord, we should celebrate and rejoice that they are not for the slightest moment concerned about what we think of them. They are interested only in giving all their hearts and lives and souls to the King. The Apostle Paul makes this statement. Now, to remind you of the context, he's writing to Timothy. He's writing to Timothy, who is pastoring this church in Ephesus. There's false teaching that's taking place in Ephesus. He makes the statement that the charge he gives to Timothy is that he would stay in Ephesus, that he would keep people from teaching certain false doctrines. In verse 5, he goes on and he says, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Jumping down to verse 18, he says, this charge then I entrust to you, Timothy, 
my child, in accordance with the prophecies made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. He again references faith and a good conscience. And now he's going to tell Timothy, in contradistinction to what the false teachers are teaching, here is how Timothy needs to manage and lead affairs within the church. Paul is very specific about that. If you want to just flip the page in chapter 3 and verse uh, 15, he makes the statement, if I delay, this is 3.15, he says, if I delay, writing to Timothy, he says, if I delay, I'm writing to you that you may know how one ought to behave within the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So the specific instructions that Paul is giving to Timothy here in the letter of 1 Timothy are intended to help Timothy know how it is that he is to be managing and guiding and directing the church there at Ephesus. Now, they are plagued by false teachers, and clear direction needs to be given, as we shall see when we get into chapter 3, about who you install as an elder or a pastor or a teacher within that church. But the instruction that Paul is giving to Timothy does not end, it doesn't start and end with making sure you've got good elders in positions of leadership and service within the church, it starts with the people of God worshiping God. That is the aim of the charge. That is the goal towards which both Paul and Timothy are pressing. And he starts in chapter 2, verse 1, first of all, prontas, Greek word, numero uno. This is the number one thing. He wants there to be prayer within the church. All the world needs to know that there is a God who loves them and died for them, sent his son to bear the penalty for their sins, the ransom for all mankind. They need to know that in order to be saved. And we as a church are called to be praying towards that end. He talks about the ransom of Christ. Paul does this where he gets off onto these tangents. He starts thinking about Jesus and he can't help himself but just talk about how glorious and beautiful Jesus is. And we see that there in the first paragraph of chapter 2. In verse 1 he says, First of all, then I urge prayer to be happening. He goes off on a tangent about Jesus, which is common for Paul. It's not really a tangent when it's about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Amen? Amen? So he he digresses and he talks about Jesus. And then in verse 8, he comes back to it. I desire then that in every place the men should pray. In chapter 2 and verse 1, he says, First off, I urge supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. That's number one. He talks about Jesus. And then in verse 8, he comes back to it. This is what I desire, that in every place the men should pray lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Now, when he makes the statement in every place, throughout his letters, particularly in 1 Corinthians and in Colossians, you will find that this expression in every place is a reference to everywhere the church is gathering together to worship. Paul is talking about whenever two or three, as, me, as few as two or three are gathering together to worship God, wherever that is happening, in every place that that is happening, I desire that the men should do something very specific. Men, the word of God is calling you today to do something very specific when you gather with this church in this place on any given Sunday, to worship God. There is a responsibility that is put upon you. You are called by God to a spirit of prayer 
And you are called by God to a particular posture when you engage in that prayer. Paul's statement is that in every place the men should pray lifting holy hands. There is an activity we are to be engaged in as we gather together for worship, and there is a posture in which we are to do it. And that posture is, in fact, the lifting of hands. You say, maybe this is metaphorical. Maybe this is symbolic. Maybe Paul doesn't mean a literal lifting of hands. I invite any man here to go home, get on your computer, pull up Google, type scripture verses, put quotation marks, and then type the phrase lifting holy hands. You'll find about a dozen references in the Old Testament, and you'll find about a half dozen references in the New Testament. I won't quote all of them to you, but this much is clear. The Apostle Paul has in mind a literal lifting of a hand toward God. He is talking about a specific physical posture that we are called to take. I could have spent a lot of time this morning going through all of these different scripture references. I trust that you men will do this on your, home, on your own when you go home at the end of the day, but I will give you one in particular. Solomon, son of David, at the dedication of the temple. In 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 22, Solomon gathering in the temple, the precursor to what is the modern-day gathering of the church, with all the nation of Israel gathered around, they're dedicating this temple. Solomon standing in the temple in 1 Kings chapter 8 makes this statement, Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of the assembly of Israel and he began to pray, spreading out his hands toward heaven. Literally doing that. We have references of Moses. In fact, there's an account of Moses very clearly. The nation of Israel during their wilderness wanderings are engaged in a fierce battle with the Midianites. And there's a specific account of Moses. And when he holds his hands towards heaven, they win the battle. And when he starts to get tired and he drops his hands, they start to lose the battle. There are other accounts, multiple accounts in Nehemiah, prophet Ezra, Nehemiah himself, King David, lots of very, very courageous and godly men in the Old Testament are recorded as having entered into worship and prayer before the Lord literally, not symbolically, not metaphorically, but literally raising their hands toward heaven. We know it isn't just as regards the spirit of prayer. It is also to be understood as something we do during worship within the Psalms. And again, if you go home and Google this, you will find undoubtedly a half dozen Psalm references. I'll give you a few of them. Psalm 28, verse 2. Now, the Psalms are the hymnal of Israel. These are songs that they are singing when they gather to worship. Psalm 28, 2. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary. You'll recall sometimes that when we gather together here for worship, uh, the worship team will lead us in that beautiful song of, uh, you know, dancing around like calves, you know, skipping about like calves. And uh, Dustin, when he introduces that song, he'll say, we need to get a good stomp clap going. And of course, we all start to stomp clap it out, right? And we start to sing the song. And it's very, very beautiful. Do you imagine it was any different for these guys here as they opened up the Psalms and began to sing to God this beautiful Hebrew poetry in which the psalmist says, 
when I lift up my hands towards your most holy sanctuary here, my pleas for mercy? Do you suppose that when they come to that line, they're thinking to themselves, oh, where are my pockets? Where am I? I've got to make sure I put my hands away. No, they're not doing that. As they're gathering together to worship the Lord through the singing of this psalm, they're undoubtedly raising hands. It goes on. Psalm 63, verse 4. I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands towards your throne. As they're singing that, do you suppose they're like looking in their tunic for their pockets? Where are my pockets? Oh, there they are. No, of course not. Psalm 141, verse 2. Let my prayer be counted before you as incense. And let the lifting up of my hands be as the evening sacrifice. These are clear references to worship practices. And there's a clear reference to the lifting of hands. Now, some of you are thinking, I just, I don't like to lift my hands. I just don't like it. When I come in here, I want to sing, and I want to put my hands in my pockets, and if I feel like it, I'll be like you, Pastor. I'll do a little elbow flap, you know. I... Once you understand that this is a symbolic act, but just because there is symbolism in this act doesn't mean that the actual posture is insignificant. The symbolism of the act has to do with the state of our hearts. There is, in the Psalms, a clear line that is sung to God the Father. Keith Green memorialized it in the song that we've sung here many, many times. Give us clean hands and give us a pure heart. Let us not lift our souls to another. The idea there in that expression is that as we worship God, we are lifting our hearts up to him. And the symbolism that is recorded for us throughout both the Old and the New Testament is that as we are lifting our hands up to God, It's an idea that we are praising him. We are lifting our hearts up to the Lord. And that's the idea that the Apostle Paul has here in this particular passage. He makes the statement, I desire then that in every place, wherever there is a worship service happening, that the men in particular, the men should pray to God, talk to God, lifting holy hands. Notice the qualification here, last expression he mentions, without anger or quarreling. We had mentioned last week that the goal of the Father is to bring about reconciliation. First with himself, that we would be restored to fellowship with God the Father, and that as a result of being restored to God the Father, we would also be restored to fellowship with each other. There is no room in the Christian life for ongoing bitterness, ongoing quarrels, ongoing arguments and heated, divisive speech between brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus noted this in his passage, in his teaching. I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 22. I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 5, verse 22. In the Sermon on the Mount... Jesus' statement. He's contrasting his teaching with the popular teaching of the Pharisees. He says, 
in chapter 5, verse 22, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to the judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there at the altar, go and first be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Now, during this teaching, one of the things that is often overlooked is the geographical implications of what Christ is saying. He's teaching this somewhere around the Sea of Galilee. When he says, if you're at the altar offering your gift, he's talking about the altar in the temple in Jerusalem, which is a couple days' journey by foot from Galilee in the north to Jerusalem in the south. So as he's talking to all of these people, this great crowd of people that are gathered around to hear the teaching of Jesus, his statement to them is, hey, you Galileans, whenever you go down to Jerusalem and whenever you worship in Jerusalem and whenever you go to offer a gift on the altar in Jerusalem, if you're in Jerusalem and you remember that your brother has something against you who is a three to four day journey by foot way back in Galilee, then you leave your gift there, you go back to Galilee, you be reconciled with him, then you come back and you offer the gift. We're talking about a six-day turnaround here that Jesus is alluding to. He doesn't take this lightly. There's no room in the teaching of Christ to say, well, I'm already here, I might as well just go ahead and do this, and then I'll go sort things out with my brother later on. His teaching is very specific No Christian can stand before God and worship the Lord in heaven while continuing to hold on to anger and bitterness, any kind of quarreling that might exist among brothers and sisters in Christ. That is contrary to everything that Jesus is doing when he comes to die on the cross for our sins. He wants to make it so that we are right with the Father in heaven. And as a result of that, He wants to make us right with each other. Any person who holds on to bitterness or anger or quarreling cannot lift a holy hand to the Father above. It can't happen. So I'm not asking you, any of you, to come in here next week in hypocrisy, raising your hands to worship God while you continue to hold on to divisive bitterness, quarreling with other people other brothers or sisters. No, what what Paul is saying is this is what needs to happen. Yes, men come in particular, men in particular, come and worship God lifting holy, holy hands. This means hands that are not stained with any kind of violence, be it slander or gossip or heated arguments but holy hands, clean hands, that they would be truly clean, truly pure, and that you could lift these hands to the Lord above in true worship of him. Paul says this is the thing of first importance within the church. This is the thing Timothy should be paying attention to most of all. Brothers, when we come to lead this congregation in worship, sometimes when we walk in here, we think, okay, I'm just here for the show. In other words, 
the guys who lead from the front, the choir, or, or the guy playing guitar. We were joined this morning by Simon, one of our Miller Bible College students who led us on piano. When we come in this morning, we have a tendency to think, okay, those guys lead the church in worship. Those are the ones who are responsible for making sure that we come into the Lord's presence and that we exalt him and lift high his name. Those are the guys who are going to lead us in prayer. That's our mentality. But that doesn't actually square at all with what Paul just said to Timothy. Leadership in the church, it absolutely does happen from the front. But leadership from within the church is every man taking a role of leadership. That's every single one of you men sitting out there in the pews. As you gather here to worship, you are called to be worshiping, not watching the show. You're to be worshiping the Lord and you're to be doing so from a heart that is pure, from a heart that is not engaged in quarreling or argument. And you're to lift your hands. Now, this is the part. Some of you are like, I'm good with you on the arguing and the quarreling, but I do not lift my hands. I'm not doing it. When I read this passage here from Paul to Timothy in verse 8, When he says lifting holy hands, a clear reference to so many saints in the Old Testament, there's really no way of getting around it. That when it comes to prayer or extolling the name of God or singing, there were obviously saints in the Old Testament who did that. Paul does not say here in 1 Timothy 2.8, every single man must lift holy hands. But it is clear from the way that this passage is worded that there will be men in the church who are worshiping God. All of us are to be worshiping God, men, without anger or quarreling. We're all to have pure hearts. But the expectation here is that there will be men in the church who are lifting their hands, which means that if you're like me, and you're like, whoa, that guy's getting really expressive over there. Where's my hand sanitizer? That's the wrong attitude. This expression, lifting holy hands, it absolutely has a spiritual component. It means more than just the posture of lifting holy hands. It means more than that, but it doesn't mean less. It's talking about a state of the heart that is reflected through a physical posture of the body. That's what Paul is saying. That's what he wants to see happening within the church. And I know that for many of us men, particularly as we think about other men watching us, We don't want to lift our hands. But that's the nature of the issue. Are we here to worship God or are we here to be concerned about what other people think of us? Two articles that I read this week. Posture undoubtedly affects mood. There has been so many scientific studies that have been done on this. It's just an accepted fact. How you posture yourself impacts how you feel. It just is the way that it is. There are, and I, I couldn't even read all of these different studies. There's somewhere around two or 20 or 30 different studies that have been done over the last 30 years alone detailing how we posture ourselves and how that posture influences how we're feeling. One article going all the way back to 1989, a researcher, this was reprinted in the New York Times, a researcher doing an interview for the Times makes the comment, Uh, To be sure, no one is suggesting that putting on a happy face can cheer up someone who is in mourning. 
Just forcing yourself to smile is what he's saying. Doesn't necessarily make you happy. But the effects of facial expression do have a modest and consequential impact on how you feel. Researchers found that simply inducing people to place the muscles of their face into a pattern of any given emotional expression would actually elicit that emotion. In another study, researchers showed that facial expressions affected the temperature of the blood flowing to the brain, and it provided a possible mechanism for regulating a person's emotion. They applied this to individuals who were clinically depressed. They said, have you just tried smiling? And interestingly enough, though its effects were limited, people who struggled with depression, if they would just compel themselves, force themselves to smile for 30 minutes a day, reported significant decreases in depression. That's interesting. In another study, this one done in 1994, this was reprinted again in in Time magazine. The title of the article is Bad Posture Makes You Sad and Afraid. That was the label, that was the title of the article. Quote, science has a long history of proving that how we arrange our muscles affects how we feel about ourselves. Researchers studied what effect slumped or straightened posture had on the hearts and minds of people in New Zealand. They strapped these people. <laughs> this is interesting. They, of course, they attached all the electrodes, heart monitor, breathing monitor, doodads to their brains to track their brain waves, all of this. And then they put these people into restraints and they strapped them into various postures. Some people were upright. Some people were forced into a posture that was hunched over. And over a period of several days, many, many hours being spent in this posture, they conducted a series of psychological examinations and evaluations. They had them try to perform simple tasks. And they were constantly evaluating their blood temperature, their heart rate, and their breathing. And then just asking them, how do you feel? Do you know what the results of the study were? People strapped into a posture that was considered poor, hunched over, down, in time came to feel incredibly depressed about themselves. They quoted, um, they went on to say, uh, if this is all starting to sound like ballet class, well, your teacher was definitely onto something. Being an upright citizen provides all kinds of tangible, measurable benefits Upright participants reported feeling more enthusiastic, more excited. They felt stronger. They felt healthier. While the individuals who were forced into bad postures, who were forced into being slumped over, reported feeling more fearful, more hostile, more nervous, more pensive, dull, sleepy, even sluggish. All of this goes to show that how we posture ourselves influences how we are feeling about ourselves. So do you have to raise your hands when you come to worship God or when you come before the Lord to pray? I don't find anywhere in the Bible that says you have to, but the implication seems to be that you will. And what we've seen from research is that how we posture ourselves will influence how we are thinking and feeling about what it is that we are doing. If you're the kind of guy that says, I'm not going to raise my hand during worship, I want you to stop and think for a second about the kind of guy you are overall. Do you find yourself generally cynical, sarcastic, 
critical? Do you find that your knee-jerk reaction to everything is to make some sort of witty, snarky comment? That general disposition will find its way into the pew on Sunday morning. And as we gather to worship the Lord, it can't hurt, particularly if that describes some of you men, to just give yourself over to the Lord in expressive worship, raising your hands to the one who died for you. Christmas is approaching here in just a few weeks. Uh, about four years ago, my daughter made me an ashtray. Do I look like a guy that smokes? <laughs> yeah, she made me an ashtray, and I love her heart in this. Don't get me wrong. You all have all had kids that have come to you that brought you weird gifts, and you're like, oh, hey, thanks. When my daughter gives me this ashtray, she's looking at me. She's wondering how I'm going to receive this gift. And if I say, Chloe, this is such garbage. I don't smoke. What are you thinking? Do you think she would be blessed by that response? Do you think she would be discouraged and think, I'm not giving him a gift ever again. You know, I'm just going to ask for stuff at Christmas time. I'm not going to think of giving him anything. If I say, thank you, Chloe, but I keep the muscles in my face arranged in a very neutral poker-like expression. Thank you. Do you think she reads into that? Now, here's the honest fact. I opened this gift. It was an ashtray. I don't, to this day, have it displayed anywhere in my house. I didn't keep it for very long after she gave it to me. But the fact was, somehow, some way, her teacher at school thought it would be cool to make me an ashtray. So we, or I don't think it was at school. I don't remember the exact event, but somehow I ended up with an ashtray. So I smiled. She's giving me a gift. And that act of love calls for an expression of gratitude and joy. And that joy can be read through my facial expressions and my posture. When my kids give each other gifts, I want them to express gratitude and joy at being loved. If you and I can recognize that on a very basic level as we come to Christmas, that when someone gives you a gift, even if it's a weird gift like socks or underwear, things that you really don't want or need, you can still express joy and gratitude that they loved you. We have been given a gift that goes way beyond cheesy, tacky things that we'll never use. God has given you and me the gift of his son, the privilege of being called sons and daughters of the Most High. And as we come to worship him, should that not call for expressive, joyful worship? Amen. First Baptist Church, I'll let you keep your hand sanitizer if you come next week and give the Lord a raised hand for the glory of him sending his son to die for you. Let's praise the Lord. Father, we just thank you for this time together this morning. We thank you, God, so much for your word to us. And God, I just pray that if there are any here who feel 
as though they cannot express themselves through raising of hands. If there are any here, Lord, who feel like they can't worship you and just freely pour out their heart to you in worship, I pray, Lord, that you would remind them that that's exactly what you desire of them, their whole heart, mind, and soul, and strength, that they would love you with all that they are. I pray, God, they would feel that freedom. Lord, if there are any here who sometimes look sideways at that sort of thing, I pray, God, that you would help them to understand that this is a calling you have placed upon all men. And I pray, God, that we would celebrate and welcome those individuals. Lord, we want to be a people of order, not chaos. We want to worship you in an orderly way, not a chaotic way. But I pray, God, that you would drive from our minds this idea that we cannot in an orderly way worship you without expressing that worship through raised hands. God, we pray that you would drive that truth home into our hearts this morning as we continue to worship you. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.